Does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late? We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style. So if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD. Along with me for the ride is Will the Thrill <laughs> and TJ2, the deuce. Is that a can? You guys no longer even say hello. You just open up beer. That's a very fine custom. That um, where I come from, that is how you say hello. That's uh, pretty much. <laughs> that is how it is done. Oh, uh, we that's a, well, that's, a, that's a warm greeting. That that's how you clasp a loved one to your bosom. <laughs> we missed you last week, T. What happened? Uh, I missed you guys. Well, what happened was we recorded an episode on Neil Peart Monday night. And we did. Great episode. It was the greatest podcast that there has ever been. LD went to go um, edit it Tuesday, and it no longer existed. <laughs> so we were going to re-record Wednesday, and my phone crapped out, and that didn't work. So I hooked up to Wi-Fi and figured we could do it that way, because we, we this is a bi-coastal production here. I'm in South Carolina. They're in, in Los Angeles. And my Wi-Fi crashed. <laughs> Oh, we just God. got the tech, the tech, all the tech problems this week. Well, okay, so but I can actually take this one step further. So you guys end up having to do, do the episode, and you did a, a great job. But um, I hate I missed it. But okay, so then I go to record another podcast on Friday, a sports related one, and um, a, as per usual, I'm I'm more the talent. I don't dirty my hands with the technical ends of things, mainly <laughs> because I don't mainly because I don't know how. <laughs> so my, so my friend James was was doing the recording. We got thirty minutes into it, and he said, "Hey." I get, uh, nothing we've said has been typed. <laughs> oh, no. I was like, what in the crap? Go figure that in, in, in 2020, in a week that features Friday the 13th, <laughs> that's, some, that's some strange uh, and unfortunate things happen. But. Yeah, but Friday the 13th was your birthday. So happy It was my birthday, birthday. yes. Yay. Yay, thank you. I'm old. <laughs> yep, yeah, you are. I mean, I mean, you're mashed corn old. Yeah, pretty much. I'm I'm um five yeah. cent coffee at Hardy's old. I'm um You're the the sun, what is it, the sundown breakfast or the sun sundown special? It, it may as well be. Denny's? Yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um yes, I'm yes, I'm um uh, I'm shout at the clouds old, I'm get off my lawn old. I'm so old that when I was in grade school there was no such thing as history. It was called now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I assume I mean, it's a strong beer because as you get older, your taste buds really just yeah, they really they 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 really just go to, yeah, they really go to pot. Yes, I'm enjoying a winter warmer, which Ooh. means there's a lot of booze in it. It's Tubalo. <laughs> it's called Tubalo from New Belgium. That's this year, it's, correct? It's an English. It's an English bitter that's not actually bitter. Ooh, lovely floral piney notes. And did I mention that, that it's got a lot of booze in it? Um, that you did. So this is going to be. Yeah. So I was going to say that, that my contributions might be m- might be pretty minimal. We, we are bound for greatness here. Well, since uh, okay, I'm going to say this. Doing this research, I feel like 
there is a strong chance that I am the reincarnated form of Keith Moon. I like this idea. We should explore it further. Yeah. yeah. So this is, so, so we, we're, we're wrapping up a, a three-part series here on uh, drummers. We did John Bonham. Yep. Who is who was crazy <laughs> and very very talented, but I mean he drove motorcycles down hallways. He pooped <laughs> in ladies' shoes. He, um, mud shark. You know he would drink twenty. He would drink twenty black Russians at a sitting. He mud shark uh, drove. He drove a what was it? He he drove a BMW or a Rolls Royce through the dealership window because the salesman annoyed him. You know. Then then we did last week Neil Peart, who goes by the name the Professor. <laughs> and and, and that's very apt because they're it's almost that rush is almost like it's almost nerd rock they're scholarly they're they're awesome i love them but i mean and, i thought it was on, so fu- yeah. I, I thought it was so funny that you, you guys were talking about neil saying oh no we we um you know we we we, we partied sometimes um sure yeah and it's like no you you read neil <laughs> you read a book you read books. You, for you, you, you read the Fountainhead for the tenth you, time. You, you visited museums and art galleries while on tour. Yes. Yeah. Right. Oh well. Um, uh, so I'm now, totally... so now we kind of go back to how we started. We have kind of a nut job sandwich here. Mm, yes. I mean, we're today. If you guys don't know, we are going to be talking about Moon the Loon, Keith Moon. But but there is a link up because Neil Peart actually cited both John Bonham and Keith Moon as two of his main influences. And actually, there's more yes. of that because Keith Moon was instrumental in Led Zeppelin. So mm-hmm. we're gonna get. And he was yes, and he was, and he he and Bonham were friends too, if I if I remember correctly. So yeah, I mean, he had a lot of very odd relationships. Can you imagine um, a party with those two? Oh my God! <laughs> yeah. It's called World War Three. Yeah, the fires are still burning to this day. <laughs> I was I was gonna say, I think if you if you um anybody who who would claim that they remember partying with Keith Moon and John Bonham is probably lying. Because you would there's no way in the world you would remember anything. <laughs> exactly. Or, or a journalist. Even then. Because yeah. these rock journalists would just be down in the in the muck with them. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, okay, so here's you know, jumping into the episode. This is going to be a little bit different because normally I am very stringent when it comes to timeline. You know, I like everything to be in a linear fashion. Mm-hmm. Keith Moon, it just didn't feel right. Mm-hmm. So I tried to make the dates work, but they might not work. We might be in 1973 and then go back to 64. We might go and, you know, be in 72 and end up in 78. I don't know. It's it's it. so you're so basically you're Scott Bakula. We're going to relive Quantum <laughs> Leap. Exactly. Quantum Leap of Moon. Okay, this is a quote. Keith was the first to treat the drums as though they were a lead instrument, and this is a quote by Tony Fletcher. He made the drums an instrument that spoke very much the same way that a lead guitar does. And I should say, Tony Fletcher spent three years collecting info on the biography Dear Boy. And I bought that book and I tried to read it. And those words are very hard. That, that <laughs> book is written in a way that uh, it's, it's almost too haughty to be deserved. Is it, is it like very, uh, is it, it, was it written like by a musician for musicians sort of? I don't actually know other than the biographer who Tony Fletcher is, but uh, the, the book is, the book is difficult. I will. Well, like I, I, I actually, I don't read a, a ton of books because when you read all you, when all you do is read and write, like as your job, that's not necessarily what you want to do with your free time. 
Exactly. But I I did read Keith Richards's book, and it was it was a fascinating read. Except early when he was talking uh, intently and and deep and and in great depth about the guitar, because mm-hmm. I'm not a musician and I didn't know what he was talking about. He's talking about tunings and all this stuff, and I'm like I'm I got nothing. It's like could we get to naked people in cocaine? Because that's really why I'm reading this. Can you just smash your <laughs> hotel room, please? Well, uh, don't don't worry. There's going to be plenty of that. Let's get there. <laughs> The legendary drummer for the band The Who inspired the world of rock with both his mad performances and his notoriously self-destructive <laughs> behavior. And when I say this, guys, I I can't stress this enough. He is he was loose. Mm-hmm. He was uh he he was fun. He I would have not I would I I don't know, maybe when I was 19 I might have been able to keep up with him, but holy crap, this gets this gets crazy. No, I don't think based on his antics. Uh, he was self-destructive on and off the stage, and the numerous drunk hits would fall victim to Moon's Madness as well as hotel <laughs> rooms. And uh, just so you guys know, I think to this day, The Who is still banned from the Holiday <laughs> Inn, like the line of, like all Holiday, like they can't go to a Holiday Inn at all. Did you say Daughtry tried? Daughtry tried, and they were like, gee, you're still technically banned. <laughs> Uh, he used to blow up toilets. We'll, we'll get there. And, uh, you know, sadly, he ended up kind of, you know, uh, blowing up himself. He was the inspiration for Animal, was he not? Uh, that's the rumor. I actually, in, in my 62 pages of uh, trying to do my research, I did not actually find that. But really? but I feel like that's right. So I've always heard that to be the case that that animal from the Muppets was in fact based loosely on, on Keith, Moon. Keith Moon. Yeah. Yeah. So for all that, Keith Moon was an amazing drummer, voted by Rolling Stones reader poll, the second greatest drummer of all time, behind John Bonham. John Bonham. Yeah. Great John Bonham. Yes. Yep. And just one I peg, I think, ahead of Neil, Neil Peart. Yep. Neil Peart. Yep. Keith John Moon came into the world at Central Middlesex Hospital on Acton Lane. In what was then the urban district of Wellesden during the peak of the post-war baby boom on August 23rd, 1946, which, by the way, has been contested. People thought it was 46. People thought it was 47. So before the 1998 release of Tony Fletcher's Dear Boy, The Life of Keith Moon, Moon's, Moon's date was actually it was presumed to be August 23rd, 1947. So this date appeared in other like reliable sources thought that it was was 1947 but it they backed him up to 1946 and that that actually included Townsend himself his authorized biography before I get old the story of the who the incorrect and the incorrect date had been supplied by moon in <laughs> interviews before it was corrected by Fletcher to 1946 oh, wow. so Keith Moon pushed himself back a year <laughs> He was the son of Alfred Charles, a maintenance mechanic, and Kathleen Winifred Moon, who took jobs as a cleaner. So I guess it's like a maid. He had two siblings that were sisters, Linda and Leslie. And he was hyperactive by nature and a (laughs) mediocre student. (laughs) He had a restless imagination and a particular fondness for the goon show and and music. The Goon Show is actually a radio comedy program, which was originally produced by the BBC from 1951 to 1960. And so it still comes up, I guess. But uh, that's what he would do. He would watch that and uh, he would love it and he would memorize it and present it to his family. 
As his, his mother remembers, Keith, from a very tender age at three, would sit at home for long durations of time and listen to an old record player. They owned about 78 records, and he would listen to them over and over again. She also mentioned how the whole family got together and listened to the BBC troupe The Goons, which is what we were just talking about. Keith would then perform all the comedy parts at school the following week. During this time, Keith received very helpful input from his musical teachers that he had the ability to perform, but he should not let himself get carried away as he had a tendency to show off. And during this phase in grammar school, he was quite a loner despite being a very active personality. I get that, introverted extrovert, you know? Yeah. In September of 1951, he studied at the local primary school, Barham, which um, it might be Forum, but it's, it's Barham out here. Uh, after failure at his 11-plus examination, he took admission at the Alperton Secondary Modern School, and his art teacher said in a report, okay, now I'm going to say a word, guys, and please remember that this is when it was an accepted terminology because we're talking about 1951. So please understand, this is not my words. This is exactly what she wrote. She said, he is retarded artistically, idonic in other respects. Odd. Oh, she sounds dumb. Yeah. <laughs> I mean. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what this guy, let me tell you what this kid's never going to be is an artist. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> so he, he, he developed a fondness toward music from a very young age. He was greatly influenced by the music of Elvis Presley. And in 1958, he joined the Sea Cadets and played the bugle to begin with. And then he quit that, and then he went to the trumpet, <laughs> and then he found that too complicated, so he finally moved on to the bass drum. <laughs> too complicated? Yeah. He became crazy about drums, seeing the movie Drum Crazy, about the late, great jazz drummer Gene Krupa. So here's Gene Krupa again. And that's a tie-in to Neil Peart right yeah. there. Yeah. And, and, and to John Bonham. You remember, he, uh, Bonham uh, said it uh, when he was a, a kid that uh, Gene Krupa was God. Yeah. Like, well, our, our ongoing theory is all drummers can trace back to either Gene Krupa or Buddy Rich. Or Buddy Rich, and I, 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 yeah. I 100% agree with that. Yeah. Because, you know, if, if you're, you know, you're growing up in the 40s and the 50s or whatever, like Keith Moon did, rock and roll wasn't quite here yet. Yeah. Right. So there had to be something that hooked you. And if you've ever watched any of the, go, you can, I think they're on YouTube. They have like a, there's a drum duel that was televised between Krupa and Buddy Rich. Oh, oh wow. man. But see, that's that's the thing I think that he liked about Elvis Presley was Elvis Presley was the closest thing to rock and roll that was around at that time. Yeah. Huh. You know, Elvis took the, the music and kind of made it his own at that point. And so I, I think it was just, you know, this is this is the closest thing we've got to the early days of rock and roll. Mm -hmm. So uh, when he saw Drum Crazy, what he liked about Gene Krupa was... <laughs> the jiggling and his basic style. He said that he was inspired by Gene Krupa, Joe Jones, Buddy Rich, with their double bass drum kit and they're twirling their sticks and all the circus tricks that were included. As the drummer on parade for his battalion in the Sea Cadets, his beat would be loud enough for so many men to hear and keep in step. <laughs> but he would decimate drum sets. Like, <laughs> we know this. I told people that I was a drummer before I even had my own set. I was a mental drummer. He's... <laughs> Just, it's great. Here's a, a fun fact. Fun fact. There you go. Thank you. There it is. In his time before joining the Who, he had roughly 20 jobs. Yeah. And he was fired from every single one of them. It's impressive. Wow. <laughs> that, takes, that takes work. Now, I was going to say, I mean, you have to be a special brand of lazy, insane, or something. 
I mean, you it got fired on. from twenty. You got fired from twenty jobs. <laughs> twenty. Two zero. Twenty. I can't even get twenty jobs. I might have had twenty jobs in my whole life, maybe. And right. I probably not it. No, I don't know. I don't even think I have. Okay, well, let me ask you a question. Do you think my casting counts as one job or as like the seventy-five? Each one is a job. Yeah, I think it's one job. Okay, then I've then I've maybe had less than twenty. Yeah, I think I've had less than twenty. Never mind. He's That's, what? Is six seventeen at this point? Yes. Yeah. He, he yes, he's he's just rushing forward. That's insane. Keith Moon's drumming was highly influenced by guys like Screaming Lord Such, Carlo Little, Cozy Cole, and Trupa. Keith Moon actually hunted down <laughs> Carlo Little and just shoved money in his face and said, please teach me. <laughs> and so Carlo was like, all right. So it was like, you know, 20 quid a week or whatever it cost. I, I had the number. It was 10 quid, 10 quid, I think. Yeah. For, for Four the- shillings and a halfpenny. There we go. There we go. This is before the Euro. From Carlo, Keith Moon took on an obnoxiously loud way of hitting the drums and the cymbals. The first time he took lessons with Carlo, the first thing he noticed was Carlo could get a very pronounced and loud sounds from his drum. After learning how to play the bass drum, like so, Keith kept building on the knowledge. And because of his very sparse use of a hi-hat foot pedal, Keith Moon often used his two bass drums to play in unison strokes. This, of course, generated a thicker and louder sounding bass drum strokes than if played with only one pedal. The other thing is Keith also played butt out as well. Ah. So uh, he would flip his his stick. So he didn't wear he didn't wear pants? I'm I'm confused. I'm sure he didn't on some occasions. Um actually we're gonna get to that guys. Hang or actually on. that's a uh, what is it? Fish <laughs> is known for taking the stage naked, aren't they? I only have one drumstick <laughs> Oh God <laughs> Okay, so Gene Krupa and Cozy Cole kind of pioneered the sounds of use of tribal sounding patterns used to play on the toms. And that's something that Keith really loved about their playing. As such, Keith brought that type of pattern to the Who songs. And you can find that stuff in songs like Anyhow, Anywhere, Anyway, Pictures of Lily, We Won't Get Fooled Again, just to kind of name a few. So you're also going to notice during some of the drum fills from those songs, Keith actually has a tendency to play the bass drum, adding a lot more energy to those patterns. And this is another one of his popular techniques and one that a lot of people now actually try to incorporate into their music to make it sound bigger than it actually is. Hmm. So one night, this is, the, this is kind of the, the story of how he got Carlo Little, one of his mentors, to teach him. He went backstage and approached Carlo Little, eight years his senior, who was the best drummer he had ever seen. And he asked him to give him drum lessons. And Carlo looked at this little kid who didn't look physically strong enough to hold a pair of drumsticks. And he was amazed at how enamored this kid was of him and considered teaching him as he knew actually Keith lived really close to his house. What Carlo did with Keith over the next few weeks set the foundation for this child who went on to be an amazing drummer. So Carlo Little actually played an early version of the Rolling Stones. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. And yes. the Flower Pot Men. Speaking of great band names, Gosh, the Flower yeah. Pot Men. <laughs> yes. Wow. Dude. It's better than whoever and the whatevers. I mean, at least it's it's something. The Eternal Triangle. Oh, the Eternal. Triangle. I will never Eternal... forget that. That sucks so bad. That is. That's that's that horrific. Such a terrible <laughs> name. Or, or or well, we've 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 covered lots of really crappy band names doing these uh this these episodes on drummers. Yeah, Eternal yeah. Triangle is horrible that's pretty and bad. terry webb and the spiders that's who john bottom <laughs> played with 
Good Lord. Yeah, not, 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 no, no, stop it. Everyone stop. In 1961, he cleared the Royal Society of Arts examination in English and science and left the Apperton Secondary Modern School. Like how he cleared it. It doesn't imply <laughs> how much, but he got over he got, the line. Yeah, he, got, he, he did just enough. Yeah. Moon would often go to McCarty's Music School on Erling Road to practice on the drums there learning his basic skills on the instrument. He left school at age 14, around Easter of 1961. And then he kind of uh, decided that he wanted to keep carrying on his education. So he enrolled in the Harrow Technical College. And this led to a job as a radio repairman, enabling him to buy his first drum kit. Yay! During that time, he met Gary Evans, through whom he would become equated with the band The Escorts. In 1960- That's another good one. Yeah, I mean... That one just sounds naughty. Yes. I don't think it meant what it meant when it meant that. Yeah, that's, I don't think it means what you think it means. I don't think that means what you think it means when it means. The members were all women of ill repute. <laughs> Again, we apologize to all sex workers and people from London. And everywhere. <laughs> we apologize to the world. He switched bands that very same year and joined the Beachcombers. So he's only 17 when on April 1964, he auditioned for The Who as a replacement for Doug Sandum. Another replacement, huh? Yeah, and it's kind of hard to imagine the who made Was it Terry somebody in the Beachcombers? Because uh, Bonham also played with them. I don't, this uh, this just always said the Beachcombers. Okay, but, he, but Bonham also played in the band called the Beachcombers at one point. Interesting. Oh, wow. Well, they were contemporaries, I mean. Yeah, they, I mean, they were. So I, I pretty awesome drummers in that band. So yeah. I never heard of that band until we started doing these <laughs> podcasts. Which is crazy because I feel like you've heard of everyone. I was not familiar with whoever, whoever in the beachcombers, but <laughs> Harry Webb and the spiders. So it's kind of hard to imagine the who making it big without Keith Moon and the drum kits. That is, unless you happen to be Doug Sandum, the guy who sat there before him. <laughs> as hardcore fans know, Sandum joined the band in 1962 when it was still known as the Detours and held that position roughly for two years. And in early 1964, after changing their name to the Who to avoid conflict with another band called the Detours, the group got the attention of Fontana Records. The, uh, and the other thing you forget, you, the other thing you forget about is how long the Who have existed. Nineteen sixty-four. Yeah. Good God, that's fit. What two? Nineteen sixty-two. Christmas. That's Fifty-eight years. Yeah, and, and the, we saw them. We saw yeah. them. We actually got to see what was left of the Who because you know John Entwistle is also had also passed away. But we actually got to see them, and they were awesome. Yeah, they were amazing. This but, was like three well. I want you to think about this. The The Who was formed in 1962. They played at the halftime of the Super Bowl in 2000 and whatever, and they still exist. That was old. Yeah, that's just, that's, a, that's I mean, that's, that's just amazing to think about how long they have existed as a band. It's insane. Yeah. No, so it was, so we did, we saw it with Roger Daltrey and, and, Pete and Pete Townsend, and it was incredible. And I've, oh God, I've got such a, it's not even, he's not a silver fox, but um, I got such an old man crush. On Daughtry? On Daughtry. Oh, he is a, he's a beautiful man. His teeth are fantastic. He's very charismatic. And, you know, if you think about it, if you think about the who, you can almost say, well, you know, uh, that's a, they're almost uh, just a, a, sort of a, the generic band, like the every band with the, you know, the, the prodigy guitar player and the handsome blonde haired lead singer and the crazy drummer. And it's like, yeah, but they invented the template. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that that's like yeah, yes, that is the standard template for most rock bands. 
that they invented. <laughs> Thanks to the Who, yeah. Yeah. Right. It, 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 that is the template because the Who did it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Commonly cited story about how Moon joined the Who was that he appeared at a show shortly after Sandom's departure where Session Drummer was being used. And it is awesome to hear, I think it was Pete Townsend that was talking about the first time they met Keith Moon <laughs> was that he had dyed his hair ginger and he was wearing a ginger jacket and a ginger shirt and ginger pants and ginger shoes drinking a ginger beer so he was just commitment full ginger (laughs) and they would describe him as the ginger version of moon and he claimed to his would-be bandmates that he could actually play better and he played the set's second half nearly demolishing the drum kit in the process and it was interesting because he said like at one point keith moon would loop rope around his drums like he would actually put a full rope around his set mm-hmm. because when he started to play, they'd start to rock and fall over. He would knock him out of place. Would, he would basically knock him out of place. He's like, oh, okay. <laughs> so that, that makes total sense. So like even his playing was extremely furious. Uh, in the words of the drummer, they said, go ahead. And I got behind the other guy's drums and did one song, Roadrunner. And now uh, side note, Roadrunner, they had tried to find a drummer that could actually play this song. And to date, they had never found anyone that could play this particular song roadrunner yeah i had several drinks to give me the courage and when i got on stage i went ah, 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 on the drums and he broke the bass drum pedal and two skins and then just got off i figured that was it i was scared to death afterwards i was sitting at the bar and pete came over and he said you come here mm-hmm. i said mild as you please Yes. And Roger, who was the spokesman then, said, what are you doing next Monday? I said, nothing. I was working during the day selling plaster. He said, you have to give up work. We've got a gig on this Monday. If you want to come, we'll pick you up in the van. I said, right. And that was it. <laughs> that's how he got That's how he got into the Who. Now you're in the Who. So, would you, so do you want to play rock and roll or um, sell plaster? <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. I, we keep going back to this movie. And I don't know if you've seen this film before but the movie that thing you do i don't i I don't think i ever saw that one actually oh it's great Uh, you would actually you would actually probably really enjoy it it's uh tom hanks tom everett scott Liv tyler ethan embry it's a it's a great film it's a great fake biopic steve zahn that's who else is and another one of our subjects adam schlesinger wrote the Mm -hmm. yep adam schlesinger wrote the 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 the, he made the one hit wonder which was from the one hit wonders (laughs) that movie is about basically about a drummer who replaces another drummer, changes the game, and then they get their rise to fame. If you think about the last few bands we've covered, that seems to be the pattern, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> like, if you're a drummer starting a band, you better make some other plans because you're probably going to be replaced by someone else. I wonder if that's why. If I wonder if that's why Spinal Tap in Spinal Tap, the it, the the it wasn't it the drummer that the just kept mysteriously disappearing and dying and leaving and oh my favorite one was the one where he just spontaneously combusts one of them spontaneously (laughs) combusted yeah (laughs) maybe that's why that's a thing yeah maybe there's so many i've heard musicians talk about how there are so many little jokes in there that like non-musicians don't get i wonder if that's one of them i it might be actually it's quite because yeah because little known fact, the original drummer for the Kinks actually did spontaneously combust. Um, Human tragedy. It was a real tragedy. That's you serious? A shame. Wow. <laughs> and yet we're laughing. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So it burst into flames right there on stage. It was wow. R.I.P. <laughs> Moon's arrival into the Who changed the dynamics of the group. Sandom had generally been the peacemaker as Daltrey and 
Townsend feuded between themselves. And that's because, but because of Moon's temperament, the group now had four members that were frequently in contact. <laughs> they would just constantly be in conflict. They would just keep fighting. And we used to fight regularly, remembered Moon in years later. John Wilson and I used to have these fights. It was very regular. It wasn't very serious. More of an emotional uh, spur of the moment things. Moon also clashed with Daltrey and Townsend. We really have absolutely nothing in common apart from music, he said in a later interview. Although Townsend described him as a completely different person than anyone I've ever met. The pair had a rapport in the early years and enjoyed practical jokes and improvised comedy. Moon's drumming style affected the band's musical structure, although Entwistle initially found Moon's lack of conventional timekeeping problematic, it created an interesting sound. And the thing is, Keith Moon didn't play the drums to keep time, like, you know, say Ringo Starr would. He would play it as if he were singing. He would try to sing the top line with the drums. It was a melody. Right. It was, he would, yeah, he was doing the melody and not the harmonies or keeping time, you know. And that can be problematic, yeah. But also, it gave it such an interesting sound. And different sound. And I, I, isn't it interesting how almost, you can, almost every band, that has made great music at some point or another, there's been like tremendous friction. Yeah. There's been problems. There's been fighting. I mean, think about Fleetwood Mac. What's their best album? Their best known album. And their, and their rumors. rumors. What was happening when rumors was being made? They're oh. all breaking up. Yep. <laughs> right? The the Kinks, Oasis. The Beatles. <laughs> I mean, the, the Beatles. Like every, everybody, the Rolling Stones, they all have mammoth amounts of friction and anger and button heads of over creative vision all this stuff and but there's just something awesome that seems to come out of that sometimes little known fact karen carpenter once kicked richard square in the balls <laughs> love it love it actually another band that has a you know insane low level of friction which you wouldn't expect um that was crazy, the way. <laughs> seriously karen was all like shut up richard whoop Right the ball. off. That is fantastic. <laughs> right the ball. <laughs> oh, this is going to be so fun. Balls. Oh, we haven't even gotten to the good part. <laughs> <of the bowls. laughs> yeah, we're we're just at we're just at the beginning of the who. Yeah, he hasn't launched his hey, antics yet. Just wait. I got like fourteen pages of just bananas. Okay. Moon really liked touring. <laughs> Kind of the opposite of Neil Peart. <laughs> exactly. Because it wasn't only a chance to socialize with his bandmates, but he could really get his drink on and meet the <laughs> ladies. But here's the thing. He was actually married and had a child by this time. Oh, my. I'm waiting for the twist from bah, bah, bah. Yeah. Officially he, uh, married? Officially married. Okay. And had a child, a daughter named Mandy. But we will get to that in just <gasps> a minute. I will. I wanted to say this about Keith's drummings. He actually had something that was pretty rare at the time. He actually had two sets of tom-toms. And the way he'd play is like he'd move his arms forward like a skier and play it that way. And it was very strange. So if you watch videos of Keith Moon playing, it seems like this wild octopus kind of thing happening. It's crazy. But he just instinctively put his drum fills in places that other people would never have thought to put them. Uh, unfortunately, guys, we got to stop the fun little antics right now to pay some bills. So we will be right back after a break from our sponsors. If you look for it, every day has cause for celebration. Celebrate a friend for their promotion baby wedding life thing. 
celebrate yourself for keeping the couch warm. It's no easy feat, especially if it's a big couch. Or maybe you just want to celebrate living in 2023, where you can get beer, wine, and spirits delivered from Drizzly in under 60 minutes without leaving said couch. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com and get your favorite drinks delivered today. And we are going to be jumping back into Keith Moon right now. Thanks for that, guys. Uh, You help the show out by helping our sponsors out. So the first song that I'm going to play is I Can't Explain. It was the band's second single release and the first under the Who name because its predecessor, Zoot Suit, and then with the B-side on the face was released under the name the high numbers what yeah didn't realize that but uh i mean that's the who is so much better of a name yeah god band names just sucked in the past they they? were kind of bonkers for yeah 60s we already knew pete could write songs and this is roger daughtry quoting we already knew pete could write songs but it never seemed a necessity in those days to have your own stuff because there was a wealth of untapped music that we could get a hold of from america but then bands like the Kinks started to make it, and they were probably the biggest influence on us. They were certainly a huge influence on Pete, and he wrote I Can't Explain, not as a direct copy, but it's certainly derivative of the Kinks music. Okay, so <clears throat> all day and all, like all day and all the night, you know, oh, all day and all the night. Yeah. yeah. So if you listen to, well, we're going to play it right mm-hmm. now. If you listen to the song, it does kind of sound a little bit derivative, but still you're on the knife's edge of a new genre of music. So I'm gonna play, I can't explain right now because it's such a good song. Oh, 
so that's that's it. That's the whole song. Two minutes, yeah. So for those who listen to the Neil Peart episode, you're going to notice a trend with my songs and a trend with your songs, Will the Thrill. Look, Rush's catalog is not known for the two-minute pop song. <laughs> Gravity. Yeah. I will actually be playing a song later on in the episode that is 58 seconds long. I think I know which one it is, too. Yeah, and they then right after, I think it's yes. so, Yep, so after that, I think I play a seven-minute song, so uh, we, we level out. We do but, level out. But, but now that I'm listening to this again through the lens of, you know, Keith Moon's contributions, that drum line is almost driving the song. Not in the sense that it's the beat. It's almost doing what the guitar is doing. Yeah. It's, it's weird once you isolate those sounds. Mm-hmm. It's very strange. Like when you start paying attention to stuff, you're like, oh my God, yeah, that's that's why it sounds so interesting is that it's not what it normally does. That's why I love the, I, it was a VH1 uh, personality that did the show, how he, he does the breakout of each part of a song. I love it's that. It's so good, yeah. I love that. And it isolates, say, a vocal track or a guitar track, or it's, it's really, for our purposes, I think it's great, especially when you want to look at the contribution of one artist, which in this case is, you know, Keith Moon is part of a whole and a very talented whole at that. I mean, look at those four. They're, they're <laughs> talented whole. Nice. <laughs> but you look at that. I mean, John Van Whistle, uh, arguably one of the best play- bass players ever. Townsend, phenomenal guitar player. Daltrey, vocalist. And um, Keith Moon. You know, but we're, we're, we pull these clips off of YouTube. So I, I like to go through some of the comments on the YouTube channel, just like when I'm listening to it. And some people are like, I love how John Entwistle always looks boring when he's playing. <laughs> I like the part where the Who played. The amount of amphetamines done for this video were probably some sort of a world record. Four nice boys about to embark on a journey of badness. <laughs> and then someone just said, Pete Townsend looks like a turtle. See, I always thought he looked like he's uh, handsome. Johnny think... Depp's sidekick in Sleepy Hollow. The little boy who's like, <laughs> I have no family, sir. But you can't hear the Kinks influence, can't you? Oh, absolutely. For that for that particular song, you could absolutely hear the Kinks influence. Uh, you know, talking about Neil Peart, who had like 48 different drums, Keith actually only played a four and then later a five-piece drum kit during his early career. You didn't have more than that? No. Oh, during, wow. Like during much of 1964, 65, he Quite the minimalist. Yeah, his setups included, he just had the Ludwig drums and Zildjian cymbals. And he began to endorse Premier drums in 65 and remained a loyal customer of the company for pretty much the rest of his life. His first Premier kit was in red sparkle and featured two high toms. And in 1966, he moved into an even larger kit, but without the customary hi-hats. And at the time, he actually preferred to keep backbeats with rides and crash symbols which seem appropriate <laughs> his new larger configuration was notable for the presence of two bass drums so basically he was playing on two separate sides so Dual he would basically drum, yeah. play two kits nice he along with ginger baker had been credited as one of the early pioneers of the double bass drums in rock now i think tj too correct me about if i'm wrong about this but i believe the allen brothers butch trucks was known for a similar setup was he not i, b- I believe that's correct Fun- funny thing bonham removed one of the bass drums from his kit did he he he, he only played with one plant uh, i think plant found um him hitting two a, a, a bit busy huh. huh what if he could have seen neil peart imagine that yeah <laughs> 
yeah, where he basically had to be like he had, he basically had to be lowered in from above on a trapeze of some kind. <laughs> to, quote, to quote that one fine journalist we always like to revisit, isn't that a trifle excessive? Isn't that a trifle excessive? <laughs> that kit that we're talking about, what they actually showed up at the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967. Oh, you know who else was there? Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Hendrix yeah. like everybody. That's, and yeah. you can actually see that now on. A, the Criterion Collection, if you actually want to buy something to hold in your hand, you can actually have that through that the Criterion Ooh. Collection, which is on my Amazon wish list. Is it now? It is, but you can also watch it for free on HBO Max. Nice. So, you know, after we're done with our, our 23 episodes of Supernatural and the series finale, which happens this Thursday, we can actually go watch something that isn't Supernatural. <laughs> I'm okay with that. Yeah. So... Um, from 1967 to 69, Moon used the Pictures of Lily drum kit named for its artwork, which had 22-inch bass drums, two 16-inch floor toms, and three mounted toms. In recognition to his loyalty for the company, Premier reissued the kit in 2006 as the Spirit of Lily. So mm-hmm. they, they still they still honor Mr. Moon. You can still get it, basically? Uh, you might be able to get it. I, I feel like that's probably a limited thing, but I don't know. I'm just talking out my butt to fill time. Anyway, so now, guys, we're going to get into... You know what? I'm going to say a few things about Keith Moon, okay? <laughs> because I feel like after this point, no one's going to be paying attention to anything having to do with music because you're going to be so distracted by what else I've got to say. So I'm going to say this right now. Keith Moon is an awesome drummer. He yes. is one of the best sure is. that ever lived. And he belongs to one of my favorite bands of all time. So when you were like, let's do drummers, I think before anyone else said anything, I yelled dibs on Keith Moon. You <laughs> did, yes. Keith Moon is what I would consider, you know, look at, look at who we picked, okay? Look at who we chose as personalities. Mr. Will, the thrill, picked Neil Peart, a gentleman who is a scholar who read books, married his sweetheart, and sought out knowledge. And you chose John Bonham, who kind of grew up as he got older and still would poop people's purses and shoes. (laughs) He pooped in women's purses. (laughs) But I picked the guy whose favorite pastime was to flush powerful explosives <laughs> down a toilet. Oh, Keith Moon. According to Fletcher, his biographer, his toilet pyrotechnics <laughs> began in 1965. Documented, mind you. Documented. When he purchased a case of 500 cherry bombs. Good Lord. And now, and understand, at, back at this point, like a, cher- like a cherry bomb was what, about a third of a stick of dynamite? <laughs> Give or take, yeah. Essentially. Yeah. It's not. It's not this crap you can buy at the, you know, off the interstate at the uh, fireworks, the also, fireworks emporiums. Now, oh, we've got cherry bombs. No, you don't. No. A good, a good, a good cherry bomb would blow a mailbox completely over somebody's house. Yeah. Yep. And also, this is overseas where the regulations are vastly different. Yep. Yeah. Right. And it's the '60s. Yeah, and it's the '60s. Oh God. We're we're only like maybe six years away from lawn darts. So. <laughs> We weren't exactly concerned for the children's safety back then. Yeah, nobody gave a damn about kids when we were growing up. No, I think one of our best days was a day that we were allowed to eat dirt. Yep. <laughs> or, the, or the day you drank gasoline. 
You told me it was tasty and I believed you because you were my older brother. That wouldn't lie. <laughs> you made me swallow my front teeth. Oh, God, you pooped in my coat. You got your you got your 50 cents for him for the tooth fairy down. <laughs> you came out ahead, in my opinion. Um, I think that didn't come out of her head. <laughs> <laughs> like, literally, he hid behind a door and threw a rope over my face oh, yeah, and, call, and yeah. caught my, my front teeth, and I swallowed them. You also rendered him unconscious. I mean, <laughs> look, he deserved it. <laughs> Do you want to tell the bat story, T? No, no, we, I think we're good. <laughs> You don't want to relive that glorious moment where we, I... We have a clip? Nope. 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 Okay. Yep. Moving on. So he moved on from cherry bombs to M80s. An, an M80 is, in fact, a quarter, a, a sixth of a stick of dynamite. Yes. Well, he just moved that, to that, straight... That, I, know, I know what the strength level on those is. I've played with them before. <laughs> yeah, well, he moved from the M80 fireworks to literal just sticks of dynamite. <laughs> Actual dynamite. I don't know how he got the dynamite. Yeah, where do you go about getting... like? I, that, that's a question I would like to ask Keith Moon and Waylon Jennings. Where do the two of you obtain dynamite? Yeah, in exactly. Large it, it, enough to where it becomes like your thing, and I'm putting that in bunny ear. Like that's your thing <laughs> is just getting oh exp like actual di like construction grade dynamite. Yeah. Right. Which is his explosive of choice. <laughs> All that. When you, I think I think anytime you have an explosive of choice. <laughs> It puts you in a very narrow category. Right. Seriously. Uh, which, which pretty much includes Keith Moon and Waylon Jennings. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> All that porcelain flying through the air was quite unforgettable, Moon remembered. I had never released dynamite so powerful. I had been used to penny bangers before, and I guess that's uh, the cherry bombs. He quickly developed a reputation for destroying bathrooms and blowing up toilets. The destruction mesmerized him and enhanced his public image as rocks premier Hellraiser. Tony Fletcher wrote that no toilet in a hotel or changing room was safe until Moon had exhausted his supply of explosives. Not that I speak from experience or a place of personal knowledge, but the key is to flush them at exactly the right moment. I'm guessing you don't want them exploding. You don't want them exploding in the commode. <laughs> you want to get you want to get them down into the septic tank or all that kind of stuff, such that it will then cause the stuff you flush down to erupt back up from every toilet served by that tank. Oh God! I do get the feeling that perhaps Keith Moon was quite adept at that. Uh huh. <laughs> Dynamite's um, tricky. That stuff will it, it, the the fuses will burn faster than you you expect sometimes. Not that I know from personal experience. I mean, I'm just, I've read I've read a lot of books. I'm a big reader. Okay, <laughs> Neil. Okay, Neil. Peer professor. Uh, Pete Townsend walked into the bathroom of Moon's hotel room and noticed that the toilet had disappeared with only the S pen remaining. <laughs> <laughs> the drummer explained that since a cherry bomb was about to explode, he had to throw it down into the loo, and he showed Townsend the case of the cherry bombs. And of course, from that moment on, the guitars remembered, we got thrown out of every hotel we stayed in. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, God. Oh, moon. Mm. And recalled being close to Moon on tour, and both were involved in blowing up of the toilets. <laughs> In a 1981 Los Angeles interview, he admitted, a lot of times when Keith was blowing up the toilets, I was standing behind him with the matches. <laughs> that's a friend. If you need to bond with your bandmates, I guess, blow up toilets? Yeah. That's, that's what I'm getting. 
A, a hotel uh, manager called Moon into his room and asked him to lower the volume on his cassette recorder because he was making too much noise. In response, the drummer asked him up to his room and excused himself to go to the bathroom, put a lit stick of dynamite in the toilet, <laughs> and shut the bathroom door. Upon returning, he asked the manager to stay for a moment as he wanted to explain something. Following the explosion, Moon turned the recorder back on and said, that dear boy was noise. This is the, ooh. <laughs> That's great. Wow. Uh, in 1966, he actually worked with the Yardbirds guitarist Jeff Beck. Oh, wow. And a future Led Zeppelin member, Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones, on the instrumentals Beck's Blero, which was the B-side to Hi-Ho Silver Lining, and appeared on the album Truth. Moon also played timpani on another track, a cover of Jerome Kerm's Old Man River, and he was credited on the album as You Know Who. <laughs> Moon may have actually inspired the name for Led Zeppelin. And I think we covered this in the John Bonham episode. Yep. Uh, when he was actually considering leaving The Who in 1966, he spoke with Entwistle and Page about forming a supergroup. Moon or Entwistle remarked that the particular suggestion would have gone down like a Led Zeppelin, mm -hmm. a play on Led Balloon. And although that supergroup was never formed, Page remembered the phrase and later adapted it as the name of his new band. So we've got a circle now. We're closing together. up the circle. We just need I'm, right here. I'm also trying to imagine a world where that supergroup comes to be. Oh, it's amazing. Uh, where Paige and Entwistle and Moon and whoever else they would have gotten actually formed that band. Yeah, you, well, you know, you do these hypotheticals like, what would be your, you know, best band? Like, you, you gotta have to, you have a drummer, a bass, a vocals, and a guitar. Who would who would that be? Well, the thing is, could they all play together? because I would definitely want Freddie Mercury's vocals and Keith Moon's drumming, but you can't take, you Could, can't- they've gone along. Yeah, you can't really remove Freddie's vocals from Roger Taylor's drumming. No. So, you know, would, would your hypothetical supergroup actually work? That's deep, man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how many shitters could they detonate? I mean, these are things you have to really think about. <laughs> yeah, how many could they blow up? So the, uh, the Beatles became friends with Moon. And this actually led to an occasional collaboration. In 1967, he contributed to the backing vocals to All You Need Is Love. Oh, wow. Which, oh. by the way, I think uh, within band, The Who pretty much had sewn up that Keith Moon could not sing. He was not a singer. He was not a singer. Uh, actually, there is a great behind the music on Keith Moon. I think it's behind the music. But either way, you can look up Keith Moon documentary on YouTube and find this specific clip of him singing, and it was not good. <laughs> but I mean, they let Yoko sing too, so I mean. Yeah, fair enough. On December 15th, 1969, Moon joined John Lennon's Plastic Ono Band, so there you go, for a live performance in London for a UNICEF charity concert. In 1972, the performance was released on compact disc to Lennon and Ono's album, Sometime in New York City. If you want to check that out, you know, it is available out there. This this seems to track. By 1970, he began to use timpanis and a gong. <laughs> yes. He's talking about power in the wrong hands. <laughs> and these were included for his setup for the, that, that was included in the setup for the rest of his career. In 1973, Premier's marketing manager, Eddie Hayes, began to consult with Moon about specific requirements. At one point, Moon asked Premier to make a white kit with gold-plated fittings. When Hayes said that would be prohibitively expensive, Moon replied, Dear boy, do exactly as you feel it should be. 
but that's the way I want it. <laughs> and the kit was eventually fitted with the copper fittings. I think that is a polite British way of saying, I'm rich, bitch! <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think that's a very, they have the, the best ways of saying things. They really do. Britain. They really do. Moon's drumming is outstanding through the group's debut album, My Generation, and on several 60s singles, most notably a song that you keep forgetting exists which is Happy Jack. I do keep forgetting it exists. How can you forget Happy Jack exists? I don't that know. is exactly it's, what I said. It's a weird mental block for me. And then also on I Can See for Miles, which was 1967, and on his double album, Tommy, which we will get to, 1969. And his talents are, that's where his talents are like best utilized in Tommy, arguably. Anyway, so right now we're going to take a little bit of a music break because we Yay. have a fun in a little bit. Woo. And we are going to listen to my generation which is one of their like i'm sorry you know it, it's it's our podcast our rules i love this song i know it's mainstream but whatever people try to put us to talking about my generation just because we get around talking about my generation things ain't do look awful Forget old Talking about my generation my generation, my generation baby Why don't you all fade away Don't try and dig what we all say I'm not trying to cause a big s- s- sensation I'm just talking about my t-
So that that was my generation. What do we think? It is what we I thought mean, it would be. I mean, it's not like this is the first time you've ever heard the song. Right. Raucous. <laughs> I wish I could go back in time and experience some music, especially like the Who's, for the first time again. Because it it it, it that's one of those songs that feels like it's just gonna come unglued the entire time. Huh. Yeah, and with his like stuttering, it's just yeah you know we're always they they kind of turn the idea of the proper brit on its head when they did that and it's just it's something we've never heard before like this is all new this is a new world that's opening up what is this magic <laughs> and uh, they're starting to play with starting to play with distortion a little bit yeah but you and can, the, and the, but it's a great it's a great one to play since we're doing an episode on, on moon because of the drums good lord are just yeah. so i mean like you hear the cymbals crashing and you're like that yes ah yeah i i i love it it's something happens to my blood when i hear this music so i i do want to say when we went to go to old shella <laughs> it was called desert trip but they had the who and roger waters roger waters and i had purchased the tickets the day that they came out like i sat in that virtual line forever trying to get tickets and we got pushed to the second weekend because they opened up a second weekend so everybody that was in the queue got pushed to the second weekend we are not festival folk <laughs> i find them frightening and and yet here i was purchasing tickets two days before the trip i got a call from blumhouse and they wanted me to come be a key pa on the set of 12 deadly days on youtube oh, that's right and it was we got the Sunday night tickets. And so we went to the festival, watched the Who play, immediately left right after. And this is in like Indio, Palm Springs area. Oh, yeah. I slept in the car, Will drove, and I made it to set on time. But it was worth every second of it because mm -hmm. just to see that, that, that band, see that windmill, guitar, yeah. the guitar. It, worth everything. I am sorry that we missed Roger, but you know, I'm glad that we got to see the Who. Absolutely. But I, what I was saying before was Keith Moon at this point is still married with a child. So we're gonna talk about her for a second. Her name is Kim McLagan, and she was born Elizabeth Patricia Kerrigan, and she was a British model in the '60s, and she was married to Keith Moon from 1966 to 1975. Oh wow. She was working, okay, so she was a model and she was working with the Dawn Academy when she was told about the Who. And she was persuaded to see them at the local club, Le Disco-Go-Go, Le Disco-Go-Go, Disc Disc where she met Keith Moon. And she started dating him at the very beginning of 1965. She believed that her father was the only person that Moon was ever intimidated by, adding that he was a very gregarious, very extroverted person he was a force to be reckoned with <laughs> in late 1965 kerrigan discovered that she was pregnant with moon's child and consequently she married moon on the 17th of march 1966 at the registry office and their daughter mandy amanda was born on the 12th of july now to say that their marriage was turbulent is putting it mildly mm -hmm. 
I believe, according to Fletcher in the documentary about Keith Moon's life, he said that he had broken her nose three times and he denied that he was married. He would deny that he was a father, except for maybe a couple times in the press. He, he wanted her to end her modeling career while modeling for Vidal Sassoon himself. And he was violent and abusive toward her, particularly if she had received comments about how attractive she was by strangers. And then one occasion, Kim hid in the bathroom while Keith attempted to cut the door down with a knife, with a friggin' knife. Good grief. On yeah. another, she had met with an agent from Paul Raymond and accepted a business card purely out of politeness. Keith lost his temper and attacked her. And despite all this, Moon still claimed to love his wife and would regularly send her love letters while on tour. So I don't think they had a great relationship. And there was a lot in the documentary that I was watching that basically stated like, it was hard for Keith Moon to accept that he was a dad because he was such a child himself. Uh, that seemed to be kind of the, the consensus of it. And unfortunately, Kim did pass away in uh, August of 2006. But you know, up until I think the point where he passed away, he was still in contact, of course, with Kim. Mm -hmm. Now, I love it when a song is based on a real person. And there is a real man that is the inspiration for the song Behind Blue Eyes. Mm -hmm. And that guy was a bouncer that the Who met while staying in Brighton while on tour. And this long-haired man with the bluest of eyes had a dark military history and his eyes showed deep pain from the loss and the hardships that he battled. Behind Blue Eyes originated after a Who concert in Denver on the 9th of June, 1970. Following the performance, Townsend became tempted by a female groupie, but he said he instead went back to his room alone Possibly the results of his teachings of the spiritual leader. I'm going to say this wrong. I, I know I, I get one word, but I'm not going to get the other. Meher Baba. Okay. Meher, Meher Baba. Yeah. I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong. Upon reaching his room, he began writing a prayer. His first being, when my fist clenches, crack it open. These words would later appear in the lyrics of the climactic rocking session of Behind Blue Eyes. When Behind Blue Eyes was to be released as a part of the aborted Lighthouse Project, so he had a project called the Lighthouse Project, and it was, you know, they, they ended it abruptly. The song was sung from the point of view of the main villain, Jumbo. The lyrics are a first-person lament from Jumbo, who is always angry and full of angst because of all of the pressure and temptation that surrounded him. And the song was intended to be his theme song, had the project been successful. So I think this is sort of a precursor to what Tommy was would, would have been. Like so it sort of sounds like that. Behind Blue Eyes really is off the wall because it's sung by a villain of the piece. The fact that he felt that the original story that he was being forced into a position of being a villain, whereas he felt like he was a good guy. The version of Behind Blue Eyes was released on Who's Next in 1971. It was the second version of the, the that the band had recorded. The first version was recorded at Record Plant in New York on March 18, 1971, and features Al Cooper on the Hammond organ. The original version was released as a bonus track on the 1995 CD album uh, reissue. Sorry, it was released as a bonus track on the 1995 CD reissue of Who's Next. Behind Blue Eyes was initially considered for a UK singles release, but Townsend claimed the song was too much out of character for the British markets. However, the song did eventually see a single release in French, Belgium, and the United States, 
and the Netherlands, Netherlands backed with My Wife in the U.S. and Going Mobile in Europe. The song reached 34 on the Billboard Hot 100 and 24 on Cashbox, which is something we've never said before. Nope. Have no idea what Cashbox is. Cashbox. <laughs> but it was number 24 on Cashbox. Pete Townsend also recorded two solo versions of the song. The original demo of the song was featured on the Scoop album. The demo, along with the newer recording of the song, featured an orchestra backing, which was featured in the Lifehouse Chronicles, which did eventually see release. Hmm. Why am I talking so much about Behind Blue Eyes? It's because I adore this song. It it's is, a great song. It is an incredible song, and it's completely... It's, you know, Keith Moon is still a presence in it, but he does take a back seat. And you can actually hear that while Keith Moon 90% of the time would play completely out of control, this one he showed extreme restraint. And so we're actually going to play this now. And also, like, I'm sure he, he takes the back seat until the latter parts of the song. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And, then it, and then he's certainly there. Yeah. But it shows you that he has restraint when he needs to artistically at least but uh we're gonna listen to that right now no one knows what it's like to be the bad man to be the sad man behind blue eyes no one knows what it's like to be hated, to be faded, to telling only lies, but my dreams, they are as empty as my That's never free No one knows what it's like To feel these feelings Like I do And I blame you No one bites back as hard on them Somebody 
said uh, Neil Peart is the most air drum to drummer of all time. Uh, the runner-up has got to be Keith Moon. I mean, I mean there's nobody on, else. Based on what I do. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and I know you said he was more restrained in this song. I felt like he just waited until the second half of the song and then just lets it all go. He is explosive, yeah. but it's, it's incredible to hear what kind of restraint he does have when it's necessary. He was at the core a drummer. He is an artist. He is he is amazing. I, oh, I love Keith Moon so much. I'm sorry. Can this podcast just be me screaming? I love Keith Moon. It can. Sure. You're I don't have many people agree to do it, but yeah, I mean you're welcome. It's your podcast. You do what you're like, want to. Why is this episode of Rock and Roll Heaven only 20 seconds? I love Keith Moon. I love Keith Moon. <laughs> hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about last Chris Christmas. This is I love, I love Keith Moon. Keith Moon. <laughs> Uh, from 1961 to 1975. Okay, wait, wait. What, what did you guys? What do you think about that song? I like, love it. It's a fantastic song. Every, everything about it, and and the the thing about the Who, they have so many songs where everybody shines. Everybody, all four of them, at some point, because Daltrey's voice on that one is fantastic. There's a, a growl in his voice that you don't hear on a lot of of their songs and obviously Townsend plays the crap out of the guitar and Entwistle does you know what he does which is lay down the most amazing bass lines and try to keep up with Keith Moon somehow which, yeah, which well, has to be a daunt, which had to be the most daunting task imaginable well, I mean you know we we talked about how John Bonham was introduced to his band and they were excited to meet the the other pairing of the percussions because bass is, 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 when you break it down, yeah, it's a string, but it's more of a percussion instrument. And how you have to get along with that and you have to keep up with each other. And I can't imagine attempting to keep up in any way, shape, or form with Keith Moon, but they do it. Yeah. And that's why. Yeah, well, but, true, but Entwistle is an underrated all-time master on his instrument. Oh, one of the best, easily. I was going to say, Entwistle could probably play with anybody, keep up with anybody, lock into a groove with almost any drummer you could name. I mean, he was, Entwistle was the stuff, man. He was a re, he was a fantastic, I would say, I would say easily one of the couple, a handful of best ever. Yeah, without yeah. question. And we will have to cover him on an episode. We'll have to do bases, so, bass yeah. players. Bass players. Because you know what? Bass players don't get enough do. No, they don't. I mean, thank God we don't have to do an episode on him, but Deacon was incredible. Deaky was great, yeah. Deaky was yeah. Deaky wrote another one, Pipes the Dust. He wrote some I of mean, the most commercially viable hits they had. Yes. Where is Brian? And we had, and, and, and in the chorus, interestingly, 
in the course of doing these episodes on drummers, we've touched on three of the best bass players in the history of rock and roll. John Paul, John, Paul, John Paul Jones, Geddy Lee, and John Entwistle. If you can name three better than that, uh, please go ahead. But I'll put Claypool in the conversation. Oh, uh, let's play pool. I, I mean, obviously, there there are others, but I mean, Mike Anthony it, probably. And I don't think it's a coincidence that you find these great bass players in the same drums where you find these amazing drummers. In the same no. that, because that's the rhythm section. That's what sets the groove. Those two yeah. have to be yeah. able to work together. Yep. Yeah. So jumping back into his life, from 1971 to 1975, Moon owned a home called Terra. Can you imagine where he got that name from? Yeah, yeah. You you asked a question. I don't know the answer to because I'm just I've had several beers now, and I just <laughs> dude, I don't know. you're southern. It's gone with the wind. Uh, you give me your southern card right now, right? If you don't know the home name of Scarlett O'Hara. You don't get to keep your Southern card for like a week. I think I'm surprised that Keith Moon was You're going to have to drink unsweetened iced tea. Ugh. <laughs> I, think, I think I'm just surprised that Keith Moon was such a fan of this film to name his own property after. No, you're right. Me, me either. And if we're, as long as we're talking about Southern movies, it was 31 years ago today that uh, Steel Magnolias was released. Oh, wow. <laughs> in theaters. Huh. I could run to Texas and back, but my daughter never could. She never could. Is it, it? What is it about Southern women in that movie that they can they can quote that like men can quote Tombstone? Yeah, I can quote Tombstone. Yeah, but you could probably you could probably do every line of dialogue from Steel Magnolias, and so could my wife, and so could our mother, and Even so could more. every every woman that lives in the state of South Carolina <laughs> that I've ever encountered. Okay, I will say this: I love Steel Magnolias. I, I I truly do. Dolly is a gem. I've maybe seen that movie straight through probably about 10 times. And I love the beginning of it and the virgin version of On the Bayou or Jambalaya in that film. But when it gets to like the halfway point, I kind of fall off. <laughs> it's a first part. You know the movie So I Married an Axe Murderer, how the first part is so good and then they like run out of jokes and it's yeah. funny in the second half? That's yeah. what Steel Magnolias is for me. <laughs> Why do I feel like I'm going to get personally attacked by most Southern people? Probably, you probably are. Yeah. And you're also, you're in, well, first of all, you compared it to So I Married an Axe Murderer, which I think the three of us and Mike Myers saw. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Frankly. Steve Harvey saw it. <laughs> it was great. Nancy Travis probably I saw it. it I saw it in the movie. I saw it at the theater on a date in high school. Seriously? Yes. I can't remember when I first saw it, but I just remember thinking, this is amazing. And, and, and as about halfway through it, I said, this was a poor choice to bring a date to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It really was. I, I think I knew I, I needed to marry Will when he actually quoted, so I married an axe murderer. Jane, get me off this crazy thing. It's a well-known fact. <laughs> it's a well-known fact, laddie. That the marble puts an addictive ingredient in his chicken, which makes you crave it more nightly, smart ass. Look at the colonel with his wee beady eyes. And that smug look on his face. Oh, you look at me. Eat me chicken. (laughs) Hid, pants, no. Down in front. It's a virtual planetoid. (laughs) It's got its own weather system. I'm naked, aren't I? (laughs) Ralph? You're Ralph? Oh, that so anyway, back to Keith Moon. Back to Keith Moon. 
That's um, great. Qu- quoting a movie that no one but us saw. <laughs> that no one listening to this podcast has ever even heard of. Guys, if you've actually watched So I Married an Axe Murderer. Hey, please email us. Yes. Please email us. Let us know. We'll talk about that. We will talk about this on air. Because uh, that is collectively probably one of our, our as a group, our top 10. Oh, oh you're a sexy bastard, aren't you? <laughs> so anyway, Keith Moon had a home named Tara. I don't actually know if it was named after uh, this the house in Gone with the Wind, but that is the name of the house in Gone with the Wind. He initially lived there with his wife and daughter. He entertained extravagantly at his home. And when I say he entertained extravagantly at his home, I mean, he would go out to the bar and then invite the entire bar back to his <laughs> house. Awesome. Gotta love um, that guy. Yeah. In 1973, Kim convinced that she neither could nor could anyone else moderate Keith's behavior. She left him and took Amanda and then uh, filed for divorce in 1975. And then later on, she actually married the Faces keyboard player, Ian McLoggin. So Marsh believes that Moon never truly recovered from the loss of his family. And Butler agrees, despite the relationship with his his future girlfriend, who we will talk about in just a second, Annette Walter Lacks, he believes that Kim was the only woman Moon ever loved. McLoggin commented that Moon couldn't handle it. Moon would harass them with phone calls, and on the occasion before Kim left him, he invited her for a drink at the Richmond pub and sent several heavies to break into McLoggin's home on Fife Road and look for Kim, forcing her to hide in a walk-in closet. Good grief. Yeah, and then she... So, so So Keith was... I mean, I'm, 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 I'm soaking all this in that you're telling us about him. You listen to his behavior, and it's like, he was crazy, wasn't he? He was somewhere else, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I don't, I don't mean like, oh, I don't mean crazy, wacky. I mean, like, he, he had some like really serious issues. Yeah. Yeah, and the thing is, is like we can sit here all day and laugh at what he does, like, oh, he blew up toilets and stuff like that. Oh, wait. But yeah. like, like genuinely, he seems like he had issues. Yeah. Control some of the stuff you're t- you're saying is like it's not some of the stuff you you've detailed here is like a lot of the, his antics are funny. I mean, I don't care what anybody says. You drop a cherry bomb in a, in a shitter, that's that's hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> there's no way it's not. But some of the stuff you're talking about is 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 really sad or scary or I mean, it's not funny. Yeah, and the thing is, I could have chosen to not even include this at all. But would you have ever known about it? No, I wouldn't. Know. No, a lot of these things I had not heard. But I, and I think it's you know fair to our audience to let them know, like certainly. Yeah. If I mean, if it if it happened, it happened. Yeah, you can't. You can either have it. This guy was here's all of his music. That's all you get. Or you can have it warts and all. And the thing is, this stuff is out here. Like this, this information is not stuff I made up. This is out there in the zeitgeist, and it's documented. Yeah, it's, it's just something that you don't really ever hear about because. People either talk about how good of a drummer he was or how, you know, crazy he was. They talk about the fun, wa- the fun wacky antics. Yeah, but we can't not like- not hiring not hiring heavies to go kill a keyboard player that was dating his ex-wife or what or whatever. I mean, that's just that's next level strange stuff. But a lot of this stuff just sounds like he like legit had some like issues issues. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, he wasn't able to keep his marriage together, but I don't think he, he wanted to actually be married or be a father. He was too much of a kid himself. That's been quoted before was he wasn't really prepared and he wasn't even ready for her to be pregnant. And then all of a sudden he's, you know, married and has a kid and it doesn't, 
you know, he says that he, how much he loves her. And I don't feel like a lot of people disputed that. <clears throat> yeah. But he, uh, you know, after she left, he started a relationship with a Swedish model named Annette Walter Lax, who said Moon could be so sweet when he was sober that I was just living with him in hopes that he would kill all this craziness. So I, I read, I, I, not read, I, I saw how they got together, which was kind of funny, which was she and a date were in a pub watching The Who play. And then all of a sudden, these big, burly security guards come out and steal her date away and basically throw him out of the club. And then all of a sudden, Keith Moon walks up and he's like, hi, would you like to go out on a date? <laughs> and he's like, I paid those wow. guys to get rid of your boyfriend. Wow. Again, wow. It, it, we laugh, but it's an awkward laugh. It's mm -hmm. like, wow, that's really unsettling. That's, uh, yeah, but that's that's Van Halen-ish in its... Yeah. Because didn't they have like a system where like the certain seats were color-coded and they, they, they would go to roadies and say like Was green, that... uh, uh, green 432, blonde. Was and they'd go, they'd, they'd go, they'd go present a backstage pass to, like oh. the front front left was green and the front middle was orange and the front right was yellow and all this <laughs> stuff and. I think Def Leppard employed a similar tactic to get yes, the groupies backstage. You know what? Good for them. Yeah. In the weird shit that I didn't think I'd ever actually say, Annette actually had to beg a neighbor, Larry Hagman. <laughs> the Larry Hagman. Yes, to check moon into a clinic to dry him out oh yeah <laughs> but when wow. he recorded moon's chemical intake at breakfast breakfast he had a bottle of champagne cavassier and amphetamines and they concluded that there was no hope for rehabilitation <laughs> yeah because that was his breakfast and lucky charms yeah. champagne cavassier and grainies wow yeah, exactly yeah <laughs> Cheese and, and grape nuts. Cheese and holy crap! Wait, wait I'm, I'm, we need to we need to step back for a second. Larry Hagman, <laughs> like J.R. Ewing. Yeah. Yeah, and this doesn't wow. like the the famous neighbors and the fun that Keith Moon has with his neighbors does not end here. Oh boy. That's, uh, but that's um, wow. J.R. Ewing was it? So well, I guess at that point he wouldn't have been J.R. He would have been um, what's his name from um, I Dream of Genie. Yeah. Yes. Because we're talking what sixties or seventies at this point, right? Yeah. This is probably pre-Dallas. Yes, it is. Because Dallas was what nineteen eighty-three. Probably started. In, it started in the seventies, I think, but later. You would probably have just known him mainly from having been on "I Dream of Jeannie." Seventy-eight. Okay, with Barbara Eden. Yes. Hey, Barbara, how you doing? <laughs> the Who's greatest strength, though, was in concert, and by the end of the sixties, they were just finally billing themselves as the most exciting band in the world. That is true. The most exciting rock band in the world. Yes. Uh, to this, Moon contributed almost superhuman energy, and his hands and feet battered his kit into submission night after night. The relentless power of the Who in full flight, spiraling out from his arms and legs. Sorry, um, I'm really excited. Yeah, I don't think drummers get enough credit for the physical nature of what they have to do. Yeah, well, I mean, think about how much exertion you put on your heart. Yeah. Because well, but I mean, it's it's one of the few. It's one of the one of the only instruments I can think of where actually being having some athletic ability probably helps. Oh sure. Dexterity and because that's one. Yeah, you know, when we did the episode on John Bonham a few weeks ago, 
one of the things he was noted for was his dexterity. How 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 well how well he moved his arms and legs moved, and the reach that he had and the power that he brought down. But it's same same deal with Moon. You you hear you hear him play. You know it's you can almost pick him out playing the drums, which is hard to do because they, 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 he just thrashed them, <laughs> just beat the crap out of them. Yeah, but there's but but it's one of the only instruments I can think of where strength and agility and dexterity are helpful. Well, you say about dexterity, and I was talking about like the count for his drums. Here's what was in his kit. He had at least 10 tom-toms, twin bass drums, twin timpani, a snare, a half a dozen cymbals, and a gong. And with that vast array of percussions at his command, he adopted a peculiar style wherein he pointed his sticks downwards, as John Entwistle once remarked, he didn't play from left to right or right to left. He played forward. And I've never seen anyone play like this before. Huh. Keith was also a virtuoso showman. Uh, and he would twiddle his drumsticks between his fingers, like he'd do the, the spin thing. Mm-hmm. I've never understood, but it's been so cool to look at. He would toss them into the air and catch them when they fell, and he developed an onstage image as a wisecracker and often ad-libbed comical asides between numbers. And like Pete, he took on an almost manic delight in retching his equipment at the close of a concert, especially in the group's early days. And and that destruction of instruments actually came from, it wasn't actually supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. Like the destruction was supposed to happen. I think that Pete uh, or John had the guitar and they threw it up in the air, but the, the ceiling was really short and it got stuck in the ceiling. <laughs> and so that's how that destruction began. Now, Another fun uh, Keith Moon aside, he once drove his car through the glass doors of a hotel, then he drove all the way up to the reception desk, got out, and asked for his room key. <laughs> That's fantastic. Oh, this is nice. Oh. This was normal. This was like, oh, if, if I had done that, I'd go to jail. But it's Keith Moon. It's Keith Moon, yeah. He did it. Just so you guys uh, know if I mentioned a guy named Peter or Butler, like I did before. Uh, Peter Duggle Butler worked for The Who in 1967 and became Moon's uh, personal assistant the following year to help him stay out of trouble. So they had to, oh, God. They had to hire a guy on. Employ a full-time person to help keep him out of trouble. Is, is yeah. there hazard pay with that? Because, I mean, it just It just comes with a helmet and some of those up gloves. <laughs> And a note that says, good luck. (laughs) Um, He remembers managers Kit Lambert and Chris Stamp saying, we trust you with Keith, but if you ever want time off or a holiday or some sort of rest, let us know and we'll pay for it. Butler never actually took them up on that offer. Oh, wow. Yeah. Smashing instruments was, you know, that was the who. That was what they were. They were one of the first ones to truly just destroy... Trash their equipment. Yeah, they instruments. Yeah. Uh, the most notable one, and you can find this on YouTube, and if you can, it was one of those things where Will was like, hey, I've got to work on this resume. Could you leave me alone for like an hour just to, you know, let me get this done? And I'm like, sure. And I found this clip of Keith Moon, and I'm like, I'm sorry, please come here and look at this. But it was when they were on the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour in 1967. And I kind of just want to maybe play that. 
Because who, who plans to go on the Smothers Brothers and destroy things? But it was the Smothers Brothers. Yeah, that's what makes it so awesome. Let's see. The infamous incident. There it is. Is this it? I, it's funny, and uh, if I want to fast forward through it, I can. So here you go, Tay. The explosion caused a momentary breakdown in transmission across America. Pete Townsend claimed he was left permanently deaf in one ear and a flying symbol sliced into Moon's arm. <laughs> you, know, you know who wasn't laughing? The Smothers Brothers? Pete, Pete Townsend. Pete Townsend. Didn't that, didn't that, didn't that permanently damage his hearing? Well, his eardrum, yeah, it blew yeah. his eardrum out. Yeah. I would yeah. whip Keith Moon's ass if he said. <laughs> I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't take try to go on Keith in a fight. I would not just be. But here's the thing: like, yeah, it blew out his ear, but it did cinch his hair too. So, like, as, as, as a person who has fire. tinnitus, as a person who has tinnitus and knows how bad that sucks, if somebody blows my eardrum up, I pro I probably would have whipped his ass. I mean, I'm just saying. But uh, you know, if I can, I will post that. I'll I'll post that clip on. It's a great. I mean, it's amazing. It it's, it's it's and it's an iconic thing. And you just, but like, didn't wasn't there a story where they were like he he had told them he wanted to do it, and there was like we have okay we have a, a an explosive charge, and it would have been just enough to kind of like pop the drum, and Keith, like swiped about five or six of them and packed them in there such that it it, it like just about blew up enough to kill people they didn't they didn't actually expect it to uh do what it did yeah so, because he, he he like quadrupled the amount of explosives he was supposed to put in there yes yeah and and because of that uh it got it got bad it was bad you know and i don't i don't know if they were actually allowed to um be back on be back on the Smothers Brothers ever again. Tommy Smothers took a dim view of explosives. <laughs> now here's the thing. They were on the road with Peter Frampton's band, The Herd, in 1967. And the Who members, Moon and Entwistle, would actually futz with their tour mates' equipment, including rigging a keyboard with firecrackers that could be detonated from backstage that is amazing. and playing and amusing Frank on the drummer, Andrew Steele, when the herd member would attempt to hit his uh, gong during the show, Moon and Entwistle will actually pull the rope that moved the disc beyond his reach. That's funny. So he oh, would wow. hit it and it would like move that up. Funny. You know, like the, what was it? The Allstate, the guy's like, oh, I got you a dollar. Oh, oh you're going to have to be quicker yeah. than that. You gotta be quicker than that. <laughs> so other than when they were messing with the herd, they were just as bad when they were on the road with Hermits Hermits in 1967. <laughs> and then it actually, I know when I think of a wild party band. Well, let me put it this way, okay? It started out innocent enough and then it turned what possibly might be criminal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pr I'm pretty sure because his pranks were were child's play in the beginning. It was stuff like putting plastic spiders in the bed sheets. And then that escalated <laughs> to a bloody barbecued pig's head placed in the same location. And this was a couple years before The Godfather came out. <laughs> oh, wow. So 
uh, he knew how to take a joke a little too far. Mm-hmm. Keith Moon turned 21 on August 23rd, 1967 or 66 or 72. No one knows. But through a, mir- through a miracle or act of God, <laughs> to, be, to still be alive at 21 yeah yeah i so because of the tour schedule he had to put off his celebration for 24 hours but he was in america at the time and of course you couldn't you know you, 21 had to be legal which i thought was 18 because i thought in days and confused they were really excited about being i think 18. it's about the point where they switched it over isn't yeah it depends what state he was in too oh fair enough well he was in michigan he was actually okay. in flint michigan yeah and they were on their first North American tour, opening for Herman's Hermits at the <laughs> Michigan Atwood Stadium. And their show wrapped at like roughly 10 o'clock. And that's when the band and the entourage decided to head back to the hotel, which was the local Holiday Inn. <laughs> As you would expect, at that point, the drugging and the drinking began, or rather continued from earlier the night at the venue. Moon, who had a reputation for getting blackout drunk and drugged up uh, surfaces with a room full of women, it should come to no one's surprise that clothing was optional for this party. <laughs> Details begin to get a little fuzzy at this point, but according to the hotel manager, it was during the next hour that most of the hotel fire extinguishers <laughs> were emptied for no reason. <laughs> that was allegedly followed up by a toilet exploding <laughs> in Keith's hotel room. To celebrate their wildest client, a drum company had delivered a giant cake to the hotel for Moon. As all of his friends and bandmates gathered in the ballroom to celebrate the drummer, a female fan jumped out of the cake wearing no clothes. So let's just hold up for just a second. We've got a a hotel toilet that's been exploded, (laughs) a naked chick. No fire extinguishers. And no fire extinguishers. (laughs) Keith decides to keep the festive mood going by dumping the cake onto those in attendance. As you would expect, it was the opening subway in the biggest Probably only food fight in Flint, Michigan, Holiday Inn's history. This is like, I guess... But this is just the beginning. This yeah. is like yeah. what I assume the Dr. Strange Love pie fight ending. That's that's what I have in my head. <laughs> there are no toilets or fire extinguishers and everyone's covered in cake. This is... And it gets worse. Is, <laughs> the fight actually spills out of the ballroom into the hotel lobby, causing chaos and confusion. And it was during this confusion that Keith Moon lost the rest of his clothes, <laughs> which presumably uh, was his underwear. So he's naked. So he's naked, covered <laughs> in cake. And just as Keith is seen running naked through the hotel lobby, covered in birthday cake, the police arrive at the hotel, which causes all involved to scatter. Uh, Moon, fearful of being arrested, runs out of the hotel in search of an exit plan. <laughs> and he finds this exit plan plan in the form of a 1967 Lincoln Continental. That means he's naked. He hops into the car, releases the handbrake, and promptly begins to roll backwards, uh, crushing a property fence and then sinking the brand new car into the hotel pool. Moon surfaces after exiting the now sunk Lincoln and realize he's surrounded by police who have their guns drawn and pointed at him. Not one to give up the wild child drummer decides to make another run for it after exiting the pool and unfortunately for moon he slipped on a piece of cake and hit the deck knocking out his front tooth (laughs) oh hey so i've actually heard two separate stories about this about like the the pool story about how he knocked his tooth out and then the other one i heard was much tamer was like somebody he was dancing on a table and someone had to grab him by his underwear to keep him from falling and he fell and he knocked out the front two teeth so 
I like uh, drunk. I like drunk naked, covered in cake, driving a car into a pool surrounded by Junior all the police. Knock the tooth out story. That, that's the version yeah. I prefer. Yeah. Yeah. The cops are finally able to apprehend. <laughs> which imagine like you have to arrest the naked twenty-one-year-old covered in cake. Who's who's a famous drummer by the who, way? Who is a famous yeah. drummer? Before hauling him off to jail, they stop at a dentist to repair his mouth. The dentist reportedly tells Moon and the police that in his current state, he didn't even need Novocaine. Wow. With his tooth fixed, the officers brought the drummer to jail for the night. And then the next morning, he gets bailed out by his manager and is sent on a charter plane to his next gig in Philadelphia. <laughs> nice. Amazing. <laughs> okay. There is one other thing I really wanted to to show you, Travis, before we do our socials and close out, because this is going to be a two-parter. It's massive. I have a tendency to go overboard with my my stuff. I'm sorry. I, I tend to do a lot of research, and it ends up being a lot of information, and it's all important. I have a small interview I wanted you to hear, be because it's one of the funniest things I came across when we were on when I was doing my, my research. You know, I did a, a play in a, a, about uh, the rock and roll business mm -hmm. called Teeth and Smiles, written by David Hare, and I was playing sort of Janis Joplin character. And I was, I'm a terrible singer, I can't sing at all. So that was a bit of a, you know, dodgy thing for me, singing on stage. But anyway, I'm about to go on for my last entrance. And I hear this, and, and my dressing room overlooks the back alley um, where the, dress, where the uh, stage door is. I hear this incredible crashing and banging and noise and, and everything. And I hope Mick's listening to this because he'll appreciate it. And I look out the back and, and that's where all the, the trash cans are. And there, climbing out of one of the trash cans, is this completely drunken guy, totally old, as we say in England. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, I like it. <laughs> And uh, covered now in trash, and he's got a pinstripe suit on, and is a complete madman. So I think, oh, you know, some drunk, as usual, Saturday night in London. So I go waiting to go on for my last entrance, and then I hear the crashing and the banging coming in through the stage door, and I think, oh, my God, he's broken into the theatre. And then I hear the crashing and the banging coming up the stairs outside my dressing room. And then the crashing and the banging stops right outside my dressing room, and I bang, bang, bang. Ellen! Ellen! Come out! And I open the door, and it's Keith Moon, the drummer. Keith Moon? <laughs> Keith Moon. The insane Who drummer, insane, Keith Moon. Yeah, wonderful. my childhood hero. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Standing there, and he was the man in the trash can. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I go, oh, he said, hello, darling. I hear you're fantastic in this play. I said, oh, hello, Keith. It's really nice to meet you. I'm very honored. You know, thank you for coming to visit. Yeah, that's all right, darling. So, and I said, I've got to leave you now because I've got to go on stage. He said, don't worry, I'll come with you. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. This would be amazing. I know. It'll be a take I some say, explaining in this play. No, yeah. no, Keith. No, you stay here. No, it's all right. I'll come and play in your band. It'll be good, you know. <laughs> And uh, I, I, for those who don't know, that was Helen Mirren. Dame, <laughs> Dame Helen Mirren. That's great. <laughs> so he was just like in the trash cans while she's in this play, and it's amazing. But uh, but yeah, so that that is going to be this episode. Okay, so this is this was uh, well, cool. We kind of got to the halfway point. A lot to come with him, obviously. 
Yeah, and I'm really sorry that it's got to be two parts. The fact is, I do, you know, anywhere between 62 to 110 pages of research for whatever yeah. I'm doing. And I tend to go overboard, and I understand that completely. But you know what? Keith Moon is an interesting man, and we could do two-parters on Neil <coughs> and John Bonham just as easily. But you guys are actually way better at editing than I am. So I'm good at doing the audio edits. You guys are really good doing the material edits. The writing edits, yeah. So, but um, the, yeah, the, so this is cool, and I'm looking forward to part two. And we want to encourage everybody. You're going to give the socials out at the end, as you always do. We actually really want to hear from you. We don't just, LD doesn't just read that stuff to fill time. You know, we heard from uh, Penelope twice now, a listener yeah. from uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, which which is awesome. Hello from South Carolina, your neighbor to the South. Um, and thank you for the birthday wishes in your previous email. You know, she emailed us. She's she's an, actually a musician. I think she said a left-handed guitar player. So she really liked the Jimi Hendrix episode. Um and said she was looking forward to the, to the Peart and Keith Moon episodes. We'd love to hear from people. We had somebody else, and I'm, I'm sorry I don't remember the gentleman's name, who after the Hendrix episode emailed us and said, you know, I really hate the best of list that people do because they always leave these guys out. And he, he listed about five guitar players and, and said these, these are among the best ever, and we're going to look them up and listen to them. Yeah, I actually already had one of them in our queue for episodes. Okay. Because he basically had created a genre of music, which was so awesome. And most people, like these guys get, you know, overlooked quite often, even though they're incredible. But yeah. it's just like name power sometimes. Like you, you, if you have to pick, you know, Neil Peart over John Riser, you know. Who, right. Who are you going to pick? You know the name. Sure. Sure. But we, but, but, but that fellow emailed us and said, hey, you know, these are these people should be mentioned among the best guitarists ever. We're legitimately really gonna like listening to them because I like we love music. I love guitar especially. Yeah. Um. So that that stuff interests us. Um. Uh. I had somebody tell me to my face that our Joe Diffie episode sucked ass. That's fine. Really? <laughs> no. He loved he loved the episode. He was like, but you played John Deere Green and, and you didn't play If the Devil Danced in em Empty Pockets. What were you thinking? <laughs> Uh, but I, but that's what we anything anything you want to throw at us we want to hear it we really do we love it we yeah. love interacting with you guys on every level to, to the point that we're we're going to figure out a way sometime maybe maybe get to the holidays first but th th we'll actually do some sort of interactive episode yeah I know I know that there are certainly people that want to be a part of that interactive episode and so what we're going to be doing is. Uh, where we're going to hammer out all of the details in future episodes, but pretty much we're just going to have a Zoom conference and let you guys hop on and interact with us. We're going to let you hack it and, you yeah. know, scream inappropriate things and then hang up. We think oh, that, yeah. that would be awesome. <laughs> oh, yeah. I look forward to that. Uh, yes. But, yeah, you know. We're just going to uh, we're just gonna have to discourage any Jeffrey Tubin kind of action, but outside that. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's it for today. Uh, we part, will be part one of Keith. Yeah. Part one of Keith. I hope it was entertaining. Uh, I know I was entertained reading and writing. There are stories that I couldn't even figure out where to put them. So I guess I'll just say one right here just to kind of end the episode. Uh, at one point, Keith decided that the band needed a pet slash mascot. So he bought a piranha. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and, uh, 
he would, you know, take it from venue to venue. And one day he put it in the bathtub and it died because the water got too cold. So Aww. that's sad. But uh, he bought a piranha. Can we? Can he we... bought a flesh eating fish as a band mascot. I think that pretty much says everything about Keith Moon that you need to know. Exactly. Exactly. Just pick the weirdest thing you could possibly go with. And that's what Keith Moon went with. So, yeah. yeah Keith. <laughs> so, you know, like TJ said, please, please, please reach out. Our social stuff is the following things. Uh, if you really like us and would like to give us cash, you can do that at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. And we are going to be retooling the Patreon. So it's not just, hey, you're giving us money. It's going to be, hey, you're giving us money, but we're doing stuff with it and you get something back. Yes. We're also going to be having a couple of giveaways in the future. I'm going to be giving away some of my uh, research books because we're moving and I've got too much stuff. So that's going to be a giveaway. And that'll be for people on Patreon and people who leave reviews and stuff like that. So, you know, please interact with us. You can find us on Twitter at Rock and Roll LT. Our Instagram is Rock and Roll Heaven LT. Our Facebook is Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. Still not saying our website. And you can email us at rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com. You can check out all our other awesome Pantheon podcasts at rockandrollarchaeology.com. Uh, there are some incredible shows, and I know that they have some Christmas shows that are coming up soon. So I may or may not be a part of that. But anyway, spoiler alert, I am. Thank you guys so much for checking out this episode. Please check us out next week when we finish up Keith Moon, and then we're going to move on to something that is very near and dear to us for the holiday season, which is going to be our housekeeping episodes. I know we've said this a couple times before, but what the housekeeping actually entails is that we are going to be covering five or six artists. I forget how many it is. Five or six artists that you guys have requested throughout the years, whether it was through email or on our uh, the Patreon page or through our Facebook page. You know, emailing us is a great way. And we will also be doing our in memorandum, our end of the year in memorandum episode. And after that, we'll be taking a short break so that we can start because we have a draft coming up. TJ, would you like to explain what the draft is? Yeah. So uh, next year, we're going to do some episodes that are, how would would you put it? These are sort of heavy hitters. Yeah. All-time greats. We're going to do some multi-part episodes on some all-time greats. So we'll need a little time to prepare for those, but the, like we're going to do the biggest names you can imagine who we haven't already done shows on. And we're going to do three and four part episodes on these folks. But uh, so LD structured a draft for us where like she gave us a long, it was a big list to pick from of some all-time greats that we haven't done shows on previously. We all, we, we had three rounds, I think. Four rounds. Was it four rounds? Four rounds. And that, all of us people. are going to do multi-part episodes on all four that we pick. It's going to be, but, but it's going to be some really, some really all timers that we're going to do some episodes on next year, multi-part episodes. And so LD structured a draft for us where there was, okay, here's, here's who you have to pick from. And then we just went in order and we all pick people that we were going to do them on. We have the opportunity to do a change up. I think we have call one, an audible. We can have one audible. Yep. And I, and I, I'm, I'm going to have one already, but we've, we've already recorded the, the draft episode. And so yeah. that'll, I'm not sure when that'll run, but early, some early next year, probably. It'll be, it'll probably yeah. be our new year's episode. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. 
And uh, just understand, you know, we, when we're going to be doing these multi-part episodes, yeah, we're going to be doing, you know, two and three parters, but typically in a month, there's four weeks in a month. So we will have an extra episode every month. So we'll have a heavy hitter and then a smaller episode. So we will be doing, you know, we'll be able to cover a lot of people. And in that interim, you guys are more than welcome to please offer us suggestions because we really want to hear what you guys have to say. So uh, you guys, thank you so much for checking us out this week. Check us out next week. And on that note, you know, TJ, we went through this, we went through the catalog of songs that I'll be playing throughout both the episodes. And you brought up that I was missing a particular song and yeah. it was, it was not by design. It wasn't, it was that I just didn't exactly know where to put all the songs that I wanted to, to well, play. Well, yeah, so that's the thing with The Who. A, they have so many great songs. This yeah. is a band who I, until a few years ago, I would have told you like, oh, yeah, you know, they're, they're fine. I'll, yeah, I like them fine. But then you start thinking about how many all-time great songs they have. And you start listing off, well, I, well, yeah, I like a few of their songs. I like, you know, this one and that one and this one and that one and this one and that one and this one and that one. And pretty soon you're at like 25 songs and you're still going. Yeah, <laughs> that's kind of when I real realized like, wow, they're great and I love them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the um, thing is, you know, I didn't realize how much I truly loved the Who until I am glued to a chair in North Hollywood trying to buy tickets to go see them at a music festival, which I kind of hate for a an exorbitant price. Sure just to be able to see I'm like do I love them this much oh my god yes I do I'm a who fan <laughs> yes that's kind of how it came to me is that I would have told you for a long time yeah you know yeah I like the who they're fine yeah they've got some good songs oh really what songs do you like oh well I like and then you start listing them off and when you're once you're about 20 deep you're like oh wow <laughs> I must really like the who this is a lot of songs to be putting on a list of songs I like and but I, and I don't even realize how far it goes back was one of my first like musical experiences Yep. was Tommy, which sure. we'll touch on, on the next episode, but, sure. but like it was the Phantom of the Opera and Rent for me. And then it was Tommy. Right. Um, but as, as one of the things we do every week is, is um, I, I'm, I'm, I am always interested in what songs whoever's taking lead on the episode is going to pick. Because it, it, they're not always the ones I would pick necessarily, or but but you kind of want to mix like what you figure people would like to hear, while throwing a few um, little curveballs in there. You know, you don't want to be too obvious. You don't want to get too obscure. It's it's it, it's a it's a fine line we walk when we pick the songs that we play on the episode. Right. But if you're gonna if we're gonna do one on the Who, there's one song that if if we don't do it, that I'm just probably not participating. <laughs> Because it's so, one of the best rock and roll. It's one of the greatest rock and roll songs of all time, in my opinion. Yeah, and it I believe it actually kicked off the idea that all of the theme songs to CSI have to be done by The Who. Right. So that's why tonight we're going to be closing out with Won't Get Fooled Again. Yeah! Because of that primal friggin' scream. Uh, it's it's the greatest it's one of the greatest screams in rock and roll history that that daltrey lays down the preamble to it via moon's drums is is next level unbelievable yep 
that this and it's one of the most iconic guitar parts probably in rock and roll history. Thank you, Pete Townsend. And John Entwistle always just sitting back there, just thumping on the bass, <laughs> just yeah. doing his thing, being awesome. If you if you watch that quietly video, in the background, if you if you watch that video of uh, I can't explain, he just looks so bored. He's just like, "Yep, I'm I'm just comfortable, just doing my thing, like just while yep. being one of the most awesome bass players ever." Yes, my fingers make there be thunder, but I'm yeah. just gonna stand. I'm just gonna stand back here and. And just pull and barely with with barely an expression on my face. He's like, his fingers are creating magic, and his brain is doing his taxes. Yep. He's like, and I got to deduct that this year, and I must deduct that and that, and oh, we're at the next song. Okay. Yep. And you're like, oh god. <laughs> but at all, this this is for all four contribute tremendously to this one. It would not it wouldn't be the same song without any of them. Yeah. But, to me, if you're going to do an episode on The Who, you got to play this one at some point because this is one of the greatest songs in rock and roll history, in my opinion. And this is a track that Keith Moon really gets to shine. And it's 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 bordering on a drum solo, but it's more of a drum fill mm-hmm. because it's, it's shorter than a solo. But it, he really gets a spotlight during this song. And so, yeah, I, I'm glad that we have a spot where we can put this. So to say goodbye, here is We Won't Get Fooled Again. Thank you. 
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.